Hi, my name is Katie and I'm from Fort Collins, Colorado. I'm 29 and I'm pretty sensitive. For a while, I thought that combination of young and emotional was a weakness. As I've continued on this journey, I'm learning this combination is instead a big, muscly strength. If you're paying attention, you know the world's going to beat you up a little bit. Or maybe in some seasons, you get beat up a lot. There are a lot of sucky truths we have to swallow, and pain mingles in the breaths we take between gulps. In the last few years, I've lost a job, my sense of purpose, and a parent. Yet, I believe hope floats on whispers, and healing can be found in the pursuit of beautiful things. My healing hasn't been loud. Rediscovery is quiet and often lonely, and looks like seeing a bluebird or waking early to watch the sunrise. It looks like little kids laughing and buying a homeless man a coffee with that $5 instead of stocking it away in fear. It looks like back rubs and holding hands and not screaming at puppies who shred up rolls of paper towels in my kitchen. As I embrace this privilege of aging, I want to live my life looking for beautiful things and pausing enough to say thanks when I see them. The world is full of good, but the bad is often louder. Pause. Be silent. Seek. It's going to be okay. I don't know about you, but that was the exact message I needed to hear. That was the voice of Katie Huey, who contributed a beautiful piece to HelloHumans.co about losing her father. You may not have noticed, but I've invited contributors who send in stories and our bigger patrons giving $20 or more a month to record a voicemail for me to share on this program. I've been sneaking them in at the end of every episode, but this was so beautiful, I wanted to make sure you didn't miss it. And make sure you don't miss the one at the end of this episode that came all the way from India. You may have noticed we missed two weeks of the podcast, and the reason you weren't aware of it was because we were having some technical difficulties with my mind. I'm going to share more about it in depth in the next week's episode because it relates better to the topic, but that's what happened. All right, let's get on to the show. Life can be a crazy and hectic and unmanageable place. It seems like there's not enough hours in the day, like there's a million things grabbing for our attention. How the heck are we supposed to juggle it all? When I start focusing to do a better job in one area, it seems like I've just left all the other areas to dwindle and die. And so I'm constantly going back and forth trying to manage it all. I'm not the best or most balanced person, which is why today's episode is on balance and how important it is to really living an amazing full life that includes having a very productive life, having close relationships, and all the stuff in between and managing it all. And our guest today is Tracy Jackson. She's a New York Times bestselling author of Gratitude and Trust that she co-wrote with a previous guest, Paul Williams, as well as screenwriter for movies such as Confessions of a Shopaholic and too many TV shows and films to, to mention here. Now, just like every episode, we really talk about everything, her life, her journey as an artist, how she keeps going, but balance is on her mind because she just started a new project called Balance and Beam, which is incredible. It's not even targeted towards me, and I love it. There's a full description in the show notes, as well as I'm also going to give the full description and pitch at the end of the episode because I think it's really cool. I think it's worth at least checking out and seeing if there's anything there for you. Without further ado, here is Tracy Jackson, recorded right in the heart of New York City, which you'll hear a little bit of. I hope you enjoy. Hey, Tracy. Hey, Sam. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. And hosting us in your house. <laughs> it's a pleasure. It's a great way to do a podcast. I don't have to leave. 
Yeah. For people who don't know you, could you just tell us who you are? Well, my name is Tracy Jackson, and I've been a writer for, goodness, going on 34 years. Most of that was in screenwriting, which I did for 25 years. And then for the last 10 years, I've been pretty much working in the field of self-help uh, through various channels, through blogging, through two published books. The last one I did, which was a bestseller with my friend Paul Williams, who I know was on this show. Gratitude and trust. Gratitude and trust. Gotta plug it. Six affirmations that will change your life. Um, and I've been kind of just traveling in the self, you know, maybe there's a better word down there. I was trying to think of it last night, but in the self-empowerment, self-improvement, self-help, finding your meaning lane for the last eight years. When you mentioned your, as we say, self-help, which I hate that word. I do too. And I'm, I'm, we got to find a new one, Sam. Let's, uh, we'll, let's, we'll, we, well, let's put our brains together the next couple of months, come up with a new one. Definitely. I see you immediately light up. So clearly that's what you're here to do is to empower. I mean, the second you said empower and help people, you immediately, your presence got so much bigger. So could you tell us about that that journey of how, I mean, you've written really entertaining movies. Um, yeah, it's, it, you know, I've been thinking about it a lot lately because I'm in process of making a life change. And I've noticed it every 10 years, the end of every decade, end of every decade for me in my life. I make some kind of seismic move. And I was thinking the other day about my life and how I got to this point. You know, how did the girl who wanted to be an actress, who ended up being a writer, and then ended up doing comedy, that the comedy part wasn't an unusual switch because comedy was always my bent and my way of dealing with pain. But how did that person end up in self-help at this stage and, you know, Paul and I have been embraced by Oprah, and Oprah's embraced me in a big way and put me in her new book and put me in her new journal in two places mixed with some of the great thought leaders of our time. And I kind of look in the mirror and go, wow, you know, how did this happen? And and how are we going to live up to this now? You know, girl, you got to kind of show up every day. I look back on my life, Sam, and I realize I've been doing this since I was a kid. The checking in after periods No, the of time. checking in, I don't think. But I, I've been helping people since I was a little kid. And I'm the child of divorce. I grew up with a single mother, like you, something we have in common. And I wasn't popular. If anything, I was the kid everybody picked on. So instead of going to recess, I used to go down and help with the kindergarten kids. And I would, like, help them with their coloring or their work or tying their shoes or getting their juice or whatever. I was sort of the help, the just volunteer kindergarten helper. And it gave me a purpose and it gave me a meaning. And I hadn't really thought about that in so many years. I sort of was tracing these little pieces of my life as one does. And one does that more the older one gets, trust me. And then when I was in my teens, I still wasn't popular. I eventually got popular, but it was later. But in my teens... I worked 20 hours a week in a volunteer capacity at a rest home in Santa Barbara, where I grew up. And I, I look back on that time, I felt so happy. I felt so useful. And when you think about it, what's a 12 and 13-year-old girl 
who should be out having fun and doing the things that 12 and 13 year old girls get to do. Doing, getting satisfaction by literally, it's something I probably couldn't even do today. I'm probably too close to a rest home myself. So it was really, <laughs> it was really then, well, it was, it was so far away then. But, you know, I would hang out with the nurses. I would take care of the people. I, I, I worked really hard. And my mother would drop me off in the morning at nine and she'd pick me up at seven o'clock sometimes. And I'd want to stay. And then I moved to New York and I was an actress and I, Spent a couple of years going up and teaching young African-American boys who were somewhere between the criminal system and life, you know, regular public life, drama. I was a trained actress. So I, you know, and, and this continued, you know, on through my time in India with the slums and things I'd done. So I, I realized that there had been this consistent cord of, of helping others in a hands-on way that gave me a sense of meaning and purpose my life since I was, you know, nine years old. So at this point in my life, when I look to how am I going to live the next, the last third, which is where I am, you know, I'm, I'm in the last third of my life. So one has to be very honest about that. And one has to look at how one's going to spend one's time. And you get much more particular and you get much more intensely focused on what's really going to give you meaning. I mean, a lot of stuff just goes away at this stage, you know, a certain attachment to finances and money goes away at this stage and a certain attachment to the ego of accomplishment goes away. If you've, I mean, I've accomplished a lot of things I wanted to accomplish, not everything. I don't know if anyone ever does, but enough to give me satisfaction I've raised two really extraordinary young women, which has probably given me greater satisfaction and pleasure than anything. And so, you know, how am I going to spend the next third? Well, it's just sort of a continuation, but on a bigger scale, full time, of just, as we say in gratitude trust, living my life in love and service. Yeah, I'd love to start from the beginning of the the plunge into just pure service, as, as you put it, which is you weren't a researcher or expert, right? And so at what point did you just go, you know, I qualify to do that. I have, or give yourself permission. That's always the, the part I think is that transformative moment is when, I mean, I can only guess that you look at the people you're, you're put up next to like say with Oprah and you're just like what am I doing like are they gonna figure out I'm a fraud you know and but at what point did you say I'm gonna I'm gonna allow myself to do this and you know it's a it's a very congested field mm. and so the chance of failure is real you know it, it so tell me about the but you know it's really when I look at my life again okay I've never been afraid to fail I I think I have many faults and I have many attributes as we all do. You know, we're all, we're all like a little ball of faults and attributes and whoever pops their head out in every given moment, you know, it's probably getting the attention. But one of my, I think one of my great strengths, let's put my strengths is I'm really, I've never been afraid to fail. And I've jumped into things throughout my life that I've had absolutely no training, knowledge, the only background I would have would have been experience or my paying attention in a very big way to certain things. But there's no way, you know, I mean, I've been reading self-help since I was, I think, 10. So that's something I've just, you know, 
gorged on. Um, Me too. I'm a complete addict. I've been a spiritual seeker of every religion on the planet since I was 10. I, you know, they're those, the only thing, it's funny, I was lecturing up at Bennington College last year and the only, and I said to them, and it never occurred to me, the only thing I was really prepared to do in my life, qualified to do in my life, trained to do in my life, because I didn't go to college myself, was to be an actress. And it's the only thing I actually failed at miserably. <laughs> I was totally, supremely well-trained to be an actress. And I failed like you can't believe. So what puts me in this position? I mean, I asked myself, I've asked myself that a lot lately because I certainly, well, the first book I wrote was about being 50 and I understood that. I've always written about what I understand. I always, you know, I go in and I think, if I'm feeling it this strongly, then there's got to be people out there that are feeling it this strongly as well. That's just the first place I jump off from. And then, of course, I've been lucky that I've pre-sold my book so people agreed that this was something that was of value. And then, of course, there is a moment of reckoning where I sit down to start and I go, oh, God, you know, am I Am I prepared to do this? I remember when I signed my first book deal, I walked out of the, you know, Harper Collins thinking, oh my God, I just signed a book deal. And I went, how the hell am I ever going to write a book? I don't know how to write a book. I've never written a book. Now I've got to write a book, you know? I figured it out. With gratitude and trust, I didn't have a history of recovery. I've never been in recovery, but I understood, I had Paul's partner, but I, I, I attacked that from, as opposed to the disease inward, I went inward to the disease. So it was a, more, a very personal experience. And then I understood then why other people would be numbing in certain ways because we're all in pain. We're all in pain in certain ways. Well, life, uh, pain is a part of it. Pain well, is part of life. You know, and that goes back to the Buddha. So, you know, you know, there we are. You know, no, nothing's new, right? Everything old is new again. So in doing that, I was able to, we were able to pull that book off. The Oprah connection has been extraordinary. And I certainly didn't expect her to embrace us in, in the way she has. I, I To be put in the company of, you know, thought leaders like your mom or Eckhart Tolle. Or, and, you know, do I feel like a fraud? I, I'm starting to get over that. And because I guess if I got there, then I'm not a fraud. You know, I remember in my film career, I always used to think, when you're a writer, you do. I mean, I don't you always think, oh, they'll, fig they'll figure me out next script. They'll figure me out next <laughs> book. You know, they'll, next, this one's fine. But, you know, the, the next one, then they're going to learn. They'll see. I'll be gone. And you, again, you know, it, it's the wisdom, I think, of getting older. And I don't know if your mom talks about this with you at all. But you, you get to a stage and you go, well, hell, I've gotten this far. I I guess I do know something. I mean, I don't know at all. God knows. And I ask a lot of questions every day of myself and the world around me. I'm always asking questions. I'm always asking the universe questions. I, I think that's what, that's what leads me to allow me to do this. I ask the universe so many questions. The universe probably just wants me to shut up. It's probably so sick of me asking it questions. And... <laughs> and it's just does she, and she has more questions. Is the girl, the girl, the, the, the girl in New York? Can she be sleep quiet? We have some questions in Nairobi. Can you please shut up? But I answer the I ask the universe endless questions, and I ask endless questions of myself. And I guess I can do this, or I can't. You know, or at some point it will fall apart. It doesn't really concern me as long as I'm 
in process and I feel like I'm connected to what I'm doing, then it seems to work out. If I give it, you know, there's always that thing of, you know, you, and I taught screenwriting for years and I would, you know, it was just say, you know, you just sit in the chair and, you know, you write, you know, and you and people would come to class and they would never turn anything in. And I, I say, why are you here? Like, well, we, we don't want to make mistakes. I go, you know, if you don't do it in life, you, you're going to make mistakes. If you don't do it, you're not going to learn from your mistakes. And the only way you're going to learn is by making mistakes. And the only way you're going to learn to write is by writing. So if I were you, while you're paying me to teach you, I would consider maybe writing something so I can help you and correct it. I think that's true in other areas. So I'm going to make mistakes along the way. I have. But I think when you work, when you devote yourself to service and you devote yourself to helping others in some capacity, when you find your purpose through that, which I think is really, you know, everyone has a different purpose and we're not all here to do the same thing, but helping others eventually becomes, even if you're a great mechanic, I mean, you're helping others, right? You're helping others because their cars aren't going to run. I mean, I'm from Montecito, which is now completely under mud. And I mean, the people you see, the service, you know, you don't have to be Tony Robbins, you know, to be helping the world. (laughs) I mean, we all help in the best ways we can. One of the almost universal themes to interviewing everyone I've interviewed so far is service. It seems universal that the people who are enjoying what they're doing have made that shift from how do I get to how do I give? It just seems like it's in my face almost that it's just the more they're thinking about how they can serve their the people that they're here to serve, whether it's cooking or drawing or writing, the more they start to fall into appreciation for their own work. And it's interesting because I, I don't know if you see this, but you, I see the word purposeful life, meaningful life. It, it's cropping up more and more than it used to, or I'm just hyper alert to it. I don't know what it is, but I think it is coming up more and more. And I think that we as a society have engorged ourselves for so long on accumulation and abusing the environment, abusing our resources, abusing ourselves, as opposed to being grateful, and as opposed to giving back. We've been hoarding and accumulating and, you know, there's this whole purging phase going on right now. There's the minimalist, you know, 20 million followers. You know, the, your generation is as I, is a big part of this. And I think that they're showing our generation in many ways. Look what, you know, what, you've, what have you guys been doing? Um, so I think there's a pushback to that. And people see that happiness doesn't come from accumulation and happiness doesn't come from the things we buy or I mean, a nice trip is a great thing and being able to take care of your family is a great thing and being able, you know, to have a nice new pair of sneakers is a great thing. And But the real joyful moments that we experience, and if I look in my own life, it's never been what I've bought and God knows I bought a lot. Um, it's been, I look back at high school, I look back at school, I was doing that and I thought my greatest moments were helping the kindergartners. Those are the ones I remember. Those are the ones that make me smile inside. I think when you say to yourself, you know, ask yourself again, ask, 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 what are the moments in my life that make me smile inside? What puts points on the scoreboard for you? And those, you know, and that's, that's, you know, 
I'll wake up in the morning, Sam, and there'll be emails from people who read Gratitude and Trust. And they say, thank you for saving my life, which sounds very self-aggrandizing to me because I really can't imagine how that saved someone's life. But this book's become, I got one yesterday from a woman. Thank you for writing this book. It's become my Bible for sobriety. You get enough of those and you say, what's better? And what is it better to go? I mean, I wrote a TV pilot last year thinking, oh, maybe I'll go back to television. And I sold the TV pilot. Didn't go to series, but I sold it. And I was back in the whole scrum of Hollywood and all the really kind of bad interior behavior on my part that might bring out. And, and I thought, no, you know, been there, done that. I found this other space. This other space is just a much better space. I've, I've hung on to every single love letter somebody has written to me appreciating whatever I've done. And I keep them because they're my voice when I can't conjure up the voice for myself to be kind. And there's, there's people, there's strangers who have become so much more than, than strangers. I mean, I still have never met them or even talked to them on the phone. But like uh, this man, Bruce, when I was very publicly struggling with depression and even suicidal ideation, he just he, he got a hold of my email and he just wrote me like once a week. And he just said, hey, I know you're not feeling good. Here's a book I really love. Check it out and let me know what you think. And then I wouldn't respond because I'm too self-absorbed in my own pain. And then he'd write me back and be like, what'd you think? You know, how are you doing? And so it's made me appreciate appreciation. So when I love somebody's work, I do whatever I can to let them know, even if it never makes it to them, that I appreciated it. Because as creatives, sometimes when it's all said and done, we don't quite appreciate it in the way that we ought to. Well, I think appreciation, unfortunately, a lot of the way we calibrate appreciation is through success, money, airtime, you know, screen time, uh, how many Instagram followers we have. Oh, you know, I mean, so how many likes we get. Um, and this has become, unfortunately, you know, it's, it, and it's something we have to constantly fight against because, okay, you need the Instagram followers to get the deal, but then you don't want to just be pandering to just get, you understand what I'm saying. Life is becoming, you see these kids now that everything's about a like. Um, I mean, we had enough trouble growing up without even having that. So it becomes even more complicated and confusing for ego and, and focus and concentration on what's right and what's wrong, you know, what's right, what's the right and wrong way to spend our time and our energy and where should it go? I think every time you know, you just talked about, you know, the kindness, to find the kindness in yourself, I think even the smallest acts of kindness, and I don't think people have to, because not everyone's going to go out and write self-empowerment books. They're not going to go out and join the Peace Corps or help starving children. I mean, not everyone is built that way. Not everyone wants to do it. And the world's not structured in such a way it's going to happen. But there are the daily acts of random kindness. Little tiny things make you feel better. It's almost selfish in its way. You know, one, on one side you say, well, it's I'm giving to others. But the reward is so much bigger than what I ever felt like, feel like I'm giving. I feel like I'm almost taking. And, and, and so it's a very, very complex relationship between the give and the take. You know, you're, 
And when, you know, when they say the old saying, it's better to give than receive, you know, it truly is. And I think we, you know, people think, well, if they give a check to the Humane Society when they see the starving dogs on TV, which I inevitably do because it makes my, breaks my heart, you know. And that's giving, you know, people. And But people sort of substitute in this country a lot of times, well, if I just give money, I'm giving. You know, if I write the check, I'm giving. I feel better now that I bought that car today because I just wrote a check. To, yeah, that is giving and people do need money. People need a lot of things. But people need self-empowerment. People need to feel... I love the movie City Slickers, which is an old movie because I don't know if you've ever seen it. You're probably mm -hmm. too young. But, you know, Billy Crystal goes out to find his smile. Bill, he's lost his smile. And he had his smile all along. It was inside. That movie affected me in such a big way. And it's this sort of romp. You know, it's like a guy romp. But it's got this own whole sort of spiritual side to it. I think you can find your interior smile in so many different ways throughout the course of a day by just doing just tiny little things for other people. And if those little things are like a garden and they grow, you come home at night. You know, we have we have a thing in the in the book about, you know, we take, you know, when it comes from recovery, sure, where you take, a, you know, an inventory of how, what you've done that day. You know, the good and the bad and the ugly and, and maybe sometimes the really good. And that's taught me a lot that it's one of the reasons I loved recovery, even though I was never in it. Um, I, and I always sort of wanted to go in it, but I didn't have a reason. But I loved those principles. You know, one of the reasons we wrote Gratitude and Trust. I loved the principles of recovery. I love personal responsibility. You know, the buck stops with me. I love the amends. I, I, I love the amends more than anything. I, I love saying I'm sorry, and I love other people saying they're sorry when they're wrong. That was, a, that was a huge part of why I started this was recovery and being like, I just want to share this. Like, you know, like, hey, it's so amazing to find a tribe. And when anybody's going through anything, if they're going through a divorce, I say, well, normally it's men who reach out to me. And I say, go find men who have survived. You know, go find other men who have survived and lean on them really hard. And yeah, I do it. I just started doing rigorous daily inventory, which is so easy. It takes five minutes where I put, you know, what I did good that day, what worked, where I came up short, what didn't, and what am I taking with me into the next day, the most important part. And I just wake up and I have an idea of like, you know, okay, today I'm going to try to listen with love. So when people tell me their name, I'm not just going to blank out and then tell my name. I'm going to listen to their name so I can say, thanks, Tracy. It's been great talking to you after we've been talking. And then, you know, even remembering a name, people go, wow, <laughs> you know? And so that's, that's today. I'm going to listen with love. I learned the hard way that this was something I wanted to focus on because my girlfriend called me, told me exactly what her plans were, which meant she was going to come see me at 4.30. And I was too tuned out to realize it. So at 4.30 when she came, I wasn't there. And I realized I just had not listened. I had heard it, but I had not actually listened. I wanted to talk about, you say you're a seeker. I'm a huge seeker. Sometimes too much. I think that it's really two part. You can Learning your entire life is so important, but then it, that's also, you know, the flow is only going one way when you're just learning. It's just coming to you. And then doing is part two. But I was curious, 
through your your journey of seeking answers, asking for answers, and trying to, you seem aware of your mortality and trying to make the, you know, I always, I say the point of surviving another day is so you can make death less scary in the end. You know, the reason you should be doing as much as you can, it's your job to get to the deathbed and be as unafraid as you possibly can. But through your journey of seeking, what are the core values that that stuck with you on it? I mean, that stuck with you in your daily practice? What are the big core? Well, you know, the big core value, the big core values, you know, they're, they, all religions and all evolved thought have the same values at their center. It's about obviously being authentic to yourself. It's about Again, being kind to others. It's about listening. I mean, when you said that, I started to laugh because I do the same thing, you know. I, I'm, I'm, you know, being introduced to someone and I'm thinking about what I'm going to say. And I'm yeah. they, and then you're really embarrassed because you go, I'm really embarrassed. I'm sorry. What was your name? I just was, you know. Um, and we're also now because of the iPhones and the this and the texting and the, you know, we're, our, our whole sense of concentration has become so completely compromised. I learned, I mean, the places I learned the most were all the year time I spent in India. And when I was in my 20s, I practiced, I studied to be a practitioner with the First Church of Religious Science, which never came to be. But I learned a lot in that. I learned a lot of rigor and I learned a lot of of things and about honesty and self-honesty and handing over to a higher power. And I haven't always been able to do it. You know, I wish I could say that in my own life, I was always good at this because I'm not always good at it. And and I think part of being aware is, you know, if I yell at my kid or I'm short-tempered or I'm sort of mired in my own mishigas and what's going on in my own life or what's not making me happy or what I feel I'm lacking or why things aren't turning out right for me or why Time Warner Cable is not returning my phone call or whatever, <laughs> you know, and, you know, why my iPhone keeps freezing when it's brand new and <laughs> do I have to go to the Genius Bar and no, I don't have an hour to go to the Genius Bar. Whatever petty kind of detail I'm stuck on is important. And then I'll be short with my child or something. And then I realize, no. You know, when they're apologize. I think that, you know, what I've learned is, I mean, I said this, you know, on Oprah and it's been said a lot, but it's that it's better to love than be right. I, I always go back to that. Um, I just tweeted, I believe love is admitting you're wrong, even when you know you're right. <laughs> yeah, and, and I think we're so stuck in our own self-righteousness, in our own opinions, in our own, you know, it's just, I'm right. And now, of course, with the chaos of the world and, and, and how polarized the country is, right and wrong or left and right or right and, you know, liberal, I mean, it's become such a consuming I think malignancy in our culture. It breaks my heart. It really, it really does. I never picked my friends based on their political beliefs. I never discussed mine with anyone that much. I mean, they were what they were. I mean, you know, the last year it's 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 really been difficult. And I think it's very hard to get beyond it sometimes. I, I got an email yesterday from someone after I 
put something out of someone's. I mean, I, and they wrote me back, no, that person's much too. I'm not interested in what you have to say about people with left-leaning beliefs. And I thought, okay, well, then unsubscribe. I mean, I don't care. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm not interested in, in you know, I mean, it's it's quite shocking and, and quite disheartening. Today is Martin Luther King Day. We're sitting here on Martin Luther King Day, right? I mean, hello, when you talk about someone who changed the world and put others first. You know, I had people unsubscribe because they didn't like that I quoted Martin Luther King today. I'm like, really? Really? Who are you? Well, A, I'm really glad you unsubscribed. Okay, that may not be the most evolved thing anyone's ever heard someone say, but I am at that point. I don't want to, you know, I don't want you list reading what we're writing if that's what your position is. That's fine. Unsubscribe. I mean, I don't need, well, you know, that's unfortunate that we're at that place in this time. But we are, you know, and you, and anyone's a fool who says we're not and it will it will heal. You know, it's going to take something to heal it. But I didn't mean, mean this turned into a political conversation, but it's really hard in these times for sometimes for thinking people not to turn things into political conversations. Because, you know, every night you turn on the news and someone's getting hurt. And I don't mean by the normal kind of someone fell out of a tree or someone fell out of off a building or some, you know, six people run out, you know, had a pile up in a snowstorm. But entire nations are being hurt. Entire races are being hurt. Children are being hurt. Children are being ripped from their parents. I mean, you know, it's, it's very hard living right now, I think. And, mm. and I've always felt an in, internal chaos since I was a child. I think my, when you go back to the seeking, and I kind of went off your question, and I apologize for that. I've, I always had a very, very chaotic interior from the time I was quite young. And a chaotic exterior. <laughs> One of the ways I dealt with that was I'm OCD and everything was always very tidy. Um, early on, that was the way I dealt with it. Control. Total. Yeah. Um, it was, well, you know, as a child, that's all you have. As a child, mm -hmm. all you have is your space. You have your yep. room. You have your things. You don't drive. You don't have any power over anything but your room and your things. My room and my things were like orderly. Like, I mean, I would just order things, you know. I mean, this morning I woke up and I was so upset about Montecito, so I went in and I organized things. You know, this is, I still to this day, you know, it's a habit I've kept my whole life. Consider this a brief intermission. This is the part where I shamelessly ask for a little help. We're trying to do this completely independent, ad-free, and audience-funded. And while it might not make sense right now, turning down the advertisers wanting to throw some cash, here's why it makes sense to me. Advertisers pay about $25 for every thousand listeners. Now, considering that five listeners could pitch in $5 a month and save the other thousand people from hearing an ad for something they probably don't need, that's where my head's at. So if you like this program, you want to see what more we have in store, videos, more stories. We're trying to make mood-altering substance, and we need your help. Go to www.patreon.com slash hellohuman. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash hellohuman. And just leave it open in the browser and think about it. One action you can take today can drastically improve the chances of this program going in the way we want it to. Back to the show. So I think, you know, with all the external chaos that's going on in the world, that A, the more people that can help people kind of organize their interior lives is needed and, and people are lost. So I don't know, you know, and I go back now to your question because I go off track. I, th I think the big things that just stand out 
is what needs doing and what are you the most qualified to do? That's what I ask myself, you know. Like where, where can you make the most good? Where, where, is my, where can I impact the most? You know, because there are places I can't, obviously. I can't be a doctor without borders and go operate on blind children. I mean, I can't. You know, there are all sorts of things I can't do. And there are things that I don't. I know I wouldn't be a good organizer in the inner city because that's something that I don't have a history of. And I don't have an exact understanding of certain people's needs and certain people's just the whole culture, you know, you know, from the inside out. I think that that's, you can help, but, you know, what do I really understand? What's the pain and the fear and the chaos that I understand? And how do I cope with that? And how do I fix that in myself? And how do I deal with that? And how do I organize that? And how do I organize that so I feel like an empowered person myself? And with those tools, then I can go out and help other people. So, I mean, that's what the seeking has taught me, that we're all qualified to do something different. It goes back to what we were saying before. So what, you know, I can't sort of say, well, I've taken this from Buddhism and this from Hinduism and this from, you know, First Church of Religious Science and this from Eckhart Tolle and this from reading you know, bird by bird, which is sort of my mantra. I, I, I got to tell you, I mean, bird by bird is one, is one of my great mantras. I'm working on a long form piece and I just keep going back to it too. Yeah. And when I taught screenwriting and people say, what do I, what do, what should we read? I'd say you read Sidney Lumet's book on making movies. You read, I forget one other book I used to tell them at screenwriting in a while. And I would always say, but if you don't read any other book, read bird by bird. I would literally make them read bird by bird. <laughs> and it, because I'm someone who jumps, it's, 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 been the most interesting year of my life because I have not allowed my I've allowed myself to just sit in discomfort and just sit in not always knowing what I was going to do next and just sit in not having a you know, I mean I'm, I'm sort of readjusting so many things and to give myself that liberty and to give myself that freedom and to actually find freedom in the discomfort because I rush into things a lot of times you know is why I don't always knew what I'm doing but and, and when I rush, which I do, I mean, I, my grandmother, who I love more than anything, I, I hear her saying to me when I'm a kid, you know, as a little kid, I always Tracy, you're going to get hurt. You, you move too fast. You move too fast, um, which is kind of the story of my life. I just move very fast. I talk fast. I move fast. I think fast. And I slow myself down by just going bird by bird. And I breathe. I mean, it, it, is, it is my mantra. Um, it's, it's really powerful. Um, and I, and I heard when I was listening to your podcast with your mom, how she talked, they said that she still used, I mean, she still goes bird by bird and you guys go, but it's just every single day she sits down for four hours and whether she has great inspiration or not, she sits down and she writes and she allows herself to write shit. And I mean, I loved what you just said. I have to go back to it where you allow yourself to be in that place where you don't quite know where you're, what you're doing because I'm also a sprinter where I have big bursts where, and so I feel like I'll get some direction, whether that's from inspiration or whatever. And I will just sprint like a speeding bullet towards it. But what I'm, what I miss, you know, th then things start to go off track and I go, you know, to me, I definitely rely on outside things. I don't know where it comes from. I don't pretend to know where it comes from, but, and then I go to 
the source, the muse, whatever you want to call it. And I go, why isn't this working anymore? And then I realized uh, I got direction for week one. And then now I'm on week six and I haven't checked in to see if the directions have changed. I loved gratitude and trust. It's such a beautiful duet between you and Paul. And I, th- I think it, it, it really works that you're not in recovery, but you are, I mean, you guys have such a beautiful overlap in strategy and I recommend the book, but I would love to, to get here your favorite parts of it or the parts that it's affirmations, but they're expanded they're, you know, and, and, and which one did you, uh, I guess just go, God, that's good. You know, I don't know that we ever went, God, that's good. Cause I mean, the affirmations we just expanded on from the Oxford group. I mean, so we can't take full credit for that part of it. We reworked them and, you know, we took things and, and watered down certain parts of them and elevated other parts. I'm, you know, if you're asking me which ones I use the most, it really depends on what's going on in my life. And, and I think that that's what's sort of wonderful about recovery is, you know, there's some days you need to make amends, right? There's some days you screwed up the day before and you really need to say, I'm sorry. Maybe there's some days with your son. I mean, I think being able to say, I'm sorry to my, your children, which is something I didn't experience much of as a child. I think being able to say, I'm sorry to your children is one of the great things to be able to do. Because you yeah. know, and I don't know if you do this with your son, but to be able to go, I'm sorry. I, you know, it's my, I, I screwed up. It's my fault. I, I, you know, I didn't mean to yell at you. I didn't mean to, I was distracted or what I'm sorry I was late picking you up whatever it is you know there's smaller things with children usually my son can drive me crazy and I can act totally inappropriate to an eight-year-old and I I have to say like a grown-up apology and he's young so he's like yeah it's fine dad whatever I'm like no you need to please listen I you know at least otherwise a shrink will later (laughs) yeah at, at least for me I need you to understand I need you to receive this for me please I mean, luckily, my mom was, I mean, she instilled starting over because she was busy and, you know, and so, you know, she was human. There was big, there's screw ups, but she always just said, will you forgive me? And can we start over? And so I got really good at allowing other people to do that, to just, um, you know, if somebody comes to me and they say, I really screwed up, I'm really good at just being like, okay, let's. Let's start over from there. I, I think that's, I think that that's, it's one of the great lessons in, in recovery. And I think there's so many, you know, there are days that. <laughs> oh, we'll, we'll edit, but this is also a dog friendly podcast. Okay. Dog friendly <laughs> podcast. Those are the dogs. Um, you know, there. I mean, this week I've been really very distressed because of all the floodings, you know, in, in my hometown. It's made me appreciate where I come from in ways I didn't. It's really interesting. I didn't even know I did. So I don't know how to do this, but something inside me does has been a big one. I don't know how to do this, but something inside me does has been probably the one I've been relying on the most in this last year where I've just been allowing myself to sit in the unknown. Um, because, and I think, that being able to sit in the unknown is a great luxury. We can't always do it. And because my career's always been kind of one project to the next project to the next project, and I prided myself, I had one movie to go to and another movie to go to. They were, you know, my, my, my work has been lined up like, a, like planes on a tarmac. 
And there was just always the next one waiting to lift off. And there's never really been very much space in between. And I've been raising children throughout that entire time. So I've been a nonstop working mother. And so now I'm not about to be a full-time mother anymore, which is well very distressing on one level. <laughs> and then, you know, on the other level, I've raised these two girls who are very competent and wonderful and my best friends. But to allow, to have to sit and not exactly know what, we never really know what our life looks at. I mean, mean, let's face it, you know, we think we know what our life looks like, you know, so we have plans and, you know, the old, you know, the old thing that, you know, about God laughing when you're making your plans. Um, So you think about that. And when something happens like this flood, you know, people went to sleep and they woke up in the middle of the night and the whole community was destroyed. It's being rebuilt once they get the mud out. Um, lives were lost and so much property was lost and it was the biggest forest fire. Yeah, as you know, I mean, it's just been a disaster. And, you know, it's it's a friend of my husband's last week went out, walked the dog and got hit by a car and never came back, right? It's, mm-hmm. we all know these stories and I don't bring them up to be maudlin, but I've always been aware since I was very young again of my own mortality. I've always been aware of the randomness of life. Now, I should have lived more in the moment in a lot of years for someone who is aware of that. And and then I kind of, you know, this morning I found myself jumping to this next thing. So if Taylor moves and then we move and then I have to go back to California. You know, I'm like I'm like two years ahead of myself as opposed to mm-hmm. be here now, you know, Ramdas. Like, you know, it's this greatest bird by bird, right? Be here now. I mean, you know, right now my kid is in the house. My other kid does live down the street. I do you know I I have a roof over my head. I don't have to worry about my next meal. I'm very lucky. I'm very lucky. And I have the time I've and I took this year and said, what was the most important thing to me? I think prior, you know, people always ask me and my next, what I'm moving into is a lot about balance, but you know, is it possible to balance? And a lot of people say no. And I think that that's a very lazy answer because I think there is a balance in life that it can be achieved. And I think that it stems from knowing our priorities. As long as you're doing in the moment, what you know you should be doing, I think you can find a sense of balance. And sometimes it means, what's your son's name? I hope. Jack. Jack. You know, sometimes it means that Jack gets two hours and editing the podcast maybe gets put off, you know, till he goes to bed. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes it means you have to say to Jack, listen, this is going to be due in two hours. So give me two hours and I'll make it up to you. And, you know, we'll go get an ice cream and buy a Lego or do something and, uh, you know, and I'll play with you or put your leg, you know, um, you know. And I realized this year that my priority was the fact that Lucy's leaving in a year for to go to college. I'm trying not to use the word leaving. It's a terrible word. But, um, <laughs> but Lucy's going to college. And so I thought, wow, you know, as opposed to looking at the year like, this year like, okay, now you're stuck trying to figure out what you're going to do next. And, you know, you didn't line it up. But maybe, you know, the universe didn't line it up or you didn't line it up for a reason because this has been this year because I've never been – a full-time non-working mom where I could be totally available to Lucy at the same time while putting together my next project. I had Jax when I was 19. I mean, huh? I had, I had Jax when I was 19. I had no idea. I, you know, I had all these, like I said, plans. I'm going to spend some time in Europe and I'm going to have these 10 years of just 
gung-ho achievement. And all of a sudden, there you go. There's all this time that needs to be dedicated to. And you're a single dad. Yeah, I'm a single dad. I mean, I've had uh, partners. I have a a girlfriend who's just so embraced him and been that support because I'm I'm young and I need, you know. But that's a lot. I mean, to be a single dad at 19 is like. (sighs) Yeah. And your mom's been a big help, I'm sure. My mom's been a huge help, yeah. I mean, I watched her do it. I watched her stay in her purpose, get things done. And, and be, you know, give me the floor time playing Legos with me, even though she's got a deadline. Yeah. You know, and there's, and there's a way to do it. I gave up television and, and neither one of my husbands, I've been married twice, ever understood how I could do that because television is such a lucrative field. And I did fine in film, probably not, you know, financially what I would have done in television. But my goal was that I was going to be with my children. You know, my goal was that I was going to raise my children. I was going to be home at night. I had to work. I had to make a living. And I had I had to work. You know, I, I, you, I think it's important to work. It's so funny because Lucy's Taylor, I was very focused on because she was the first. And she, I think, realized that if I didn't work, I really would have driven her crazy. So she was always happy that I was a working mom. <laughs> I think that she thought me without work would have just you know, suffocated her to the point. She saw what I was like with work. She, she, I mean, her little brain went, she didn't have a job. Can you imagine what she'd be like with me? Um, By the time Lucy came along, I was in a good marriage. I had, you know, Taylor was working. So she was fourth. She wasn't fourth in priority, but she was part of a foursome. And she always used to say to me, isn't being my mom enough? Which kind of broke my heart, you know? And she used to say things like, when I grow up, I'm going to have eight children. They're all going to be named Alexa, and they're never going to meet a babysitter. Well, the subtext of that isn't very hard to figure out, right? But the, the other day, she said, is it enough being my mom? And I went, let me ask you a question. Is it enough just being my daughter? I mean, is that, is not going to college and not having your friends and not having your interest in politics and not having your interest in all the things, she's interested in a lot of things. Our kids are, it's, it's like, is that enough for your life? And she sort of stopped, you know, and she realized at that moment. So I think that it's very important. I mean, some women get enough satisfaction in life by being mothers, and it is a noble profession. Some women have to work. Most women have to work to put, because most families need two people participating. And many, many families like yours and mine, you know, had single parents. So, you know, working isn't, not working isn't even an option for many moms. And, it's not really been an option for, for me for most of my life, but it's also given me a purpose and it's made me a better parent. But at the same time, I gave up other things so I would be home every night. You know, I mean, I, Lucy would say, you're not very social. I go, no, you know, I would only, we only go out two nights a week. That was my mantra forever for my kids. I would never go out more than two nights a week for anything unless I had to be on the road promoting a book or work. And then I'd come right back. So it was sit around the table every night having dinner like the Brady Bunch. That was, you know, really, really important. So I made it up in other ways. But I think that you you can work and you can be a parent and you can balance it out. It just takes it takes dexterity and it takes focus and it takes prioritizing. And when that moment you feel like kind of just doing something random and you go, hmm, but there's that kid. That kid needs me. My kid needs my attention. Yeah, I've had, I've had people ask me, like, how? how? How did you do it? And it's like, when you get put in position, you find a way. And I think if you if you let yourself be in the chance of 
how am I going to do this? That's such a, I love that place where you go, how am I going to do this? You know, how are we going to pull off this program? You will find, it finds a way if you, if you let it. It does. And if it doesn't find a way, and I don't mean this isn't, but things in life don't always find a way. What you find they do more often than not is they lead you to one of two places. They either lead you to what the next thing is, or they teach you what you really want and how to go about making that next move. Yeah. And things end. I was listening to a podcast that Oprah did with Norman Lear the other day, and he was talking about, like, because at the peak of his career, he stopped, then he went and he joined, started the American Way and People for the American Way. And, and he said, you know, one of the things he's lived by is over next. And I think sometimes in life, it's, you know, we hold on, again, it's holding on. Sometimes we hold on too long to something that's worn out its welcome. And sometimes we hold on to things that, you know, aren't teaching us things anymore. We're holding on to things that aren't growing anymore, or we hold on to things where we aren't growing with inside of them anymore. And we hold on to them because we know them and because they're safe. And they can be jobs and they can be relationships. They're very often relationships. They can be any number of things, ways of thinking. Again, you know, it's better to be right. Is it better to be right than be, and be miserable? I don't think so. It's really knowing when something's not working. I mean, that's mm. a huge secret, I think, in life is knowing when it's time to move on. And life is forward momentum. Life is, you know, it's moving. Oh, yes, of course, in the, in the most, you know, concrete, depressing thing you can think of. I like the way you say, and I agree with you. If you can look back on your life and say you've done most of what you want to do, then you can leave this place with a kind of open, clean heart and kind of a one final gasp and go um, without holding on to all these things that maybe didn't happen or regrets and anger. But life is forward momentum. And it's not just doing the same thing for 50, 60, 70 years. It's not just being in the same, oftentimes the same relationship for 50, 60 years. It's not, especially the next generation. I mean, the millennials, they don't have, they're not going to have one job. You know, that, that sort of one job for life, get a watch, goodbye. That's gone. You know, many jobs, many different things. I've done many different things in my life. They've all kind of centered around the same concepts. Uh, they've all had to do with words and me being understood and a certain kind of information being transmitted through me. But they've all been very different in certain ways. And, you know, it's so it's knowing just to keep moving forward and not be afraid and not just dig your, you know, what is worse than people who just dig their heels in the ground and say, I'm not moving forward. No, I'm here. I have one of my little dogs like that. She won't take walks. She just goes out there and she stands, right? She stands until her feet bleed. And it's just, it's this fascinating kind of, I don't know what's going on in her brain. It's like, what do you know? You got to take, you got to move forward. <laughs> you know, the only way you get anywhere, the only way you get anywhere is by moving forward. And the only way you learn is by moving forward. The only way you learn is by moving into new territory that you don't necessarily understand because it goes back to what you asked me earlier about being frightened of not understanding something and going into it. Well, why would I necessarily go into something I understood? Because then I wouldn't be in a process of learning. What fascinates me is learning how to do something new. Yeah. And figuring out how to make it work. And some things haven't worked, but most things have. I feel like the things that haven't worked 
are a way of things working itself out. You know, like almost I can't I can't think of one failure that hasn't in some way carried on to the next project in terms of it really helpful. I mean, I was a college dropout for a design school and I learned I learned things there that carry with me everywhere if it comes to editing video or the podcast. These are all things that at least the principles came from design or making the graphics for the stories or whatever it is. The skills, it was a huge failure at the time. It was something I carried so much shame about. Somehow it just presented itself where it was like when it was time to go, I was just like, holy cow, I have a foundation in these skills. And it's from this monumental failure. We learn more. From, we, the only thing we learn from is from our failures. And that's what people don't understand. You know, the only th- failure is our best teacher. Failure is our teacher. Failure is our schoolroom. Success isn't our schoolroom. What do you learn from success? That you knew how to do it? That you had an aptitude? That things went your way? That you're somehow better than someone else? I mean, it, it's sort of out, out of the gate success in some ways can be one of the most harmful things there is. Yeah. It doesn't teach you fortitude. It doesn't teach you humility. It doesn't teach you perseverance. It doesn't teach you dexterity. And it doesn't teach you any of the real skills you need. You need to be nimble. You know, you need to be able to change. You need... You need to be able to understand what went wrong and how to make it right next time. You need to be humble so when someone else fails, you don't sort of attack them and make them feel shameful. You need to see your own humility in the world around you and that you're not the most important thing in it. I mean, I don't think success, I mean, early six, the things I was successful in early taught me nothing but to be an absolute asshole. I mean, you know, I mean, that's when I got in the most trouble and people would go, I don't want to be around her. Look at her. She's so stuck up. You know, she got a TV show on the air and one thing, oh. And it, there was this wonderful woman. I got a TV show on very early in Hollywood, like way too early for my own good. Like I hadn't been on any show and I got a pilot on the air and it went to series. Oh, isn't that easy? Well, you just write a pilot and it goes to series. And there are all these people who'd been sitting around like toiling away for years and like they just were so resentful and, and I was so obnoxious. And and this wonderful woman named Janice Hirsch, who was one of the last people to get polio. She's an extraordinary woman. And she's like done everything that the world said she couldn't do. You know, she's had, had a child. She had this long career in Hollywood. I mean, she's an amazing, amazing woman in every way and, and a great role model because she's had to fight walking on Kenny sticks her whole life. She's had to fight being handicapped, being looked at the world by being handicapped. So she fought against it and she won. I mean... But she said to me, she took me aside one day and said, I just want to tell you something. I'm going to teach you some two things right now. She's a bit older than I am. She said, everybody's replaceable. Save half your money. And she <laughs> turned on and she walked away. Well, it's the best advice anybody gave me ever. I wasn't so great at saving half my money. But, you know, I really learned early everyone's replaceable. Now, you don't learn that from success. What you learn from, you know, and I think, you know, you see that when you, I, I, you see that especially in New York. You see that when people come to New York. And I, and I think it happens when people go to college too. No, I, I didn't go to college, but 
um, I can see it even with my daughter, you know, applying to colleges and what have you. You know, when you're in school, if you're the if you're the best actor, or you're the best painter, or you're the best whatever you're the best at. You're the best in this little tiny environment that's very, very hermetically sealed. And then you go out in the world and you go, holy shit, like, like there's other really smart people. There's other really good singers. There's other really good actors. There's other really good writers. You, you know, you, you don't, you haven't learned anything because you've been sort of calling your parents, oh my God, you're the best. And your teacher said, you're the best. <laughs> and everyone in the town said, you're the best. And you know, there you go. You're the best. Now I'm going to go out in the world and I'm going to be the best. And you realize, whoa, there are a lot of bests. Yeah. So it's a personal best that I have to be seeking. And I think that so success, mm, I think success is not a, not always a good thing. I think, and going into something with that I'm going to succeed, that's not always, you want to succeed. You want to do the best job you can and you want, yes, success is, is a great thing, but we've become a country that's so focused on this kind of very public success and that money is success. And again, back to the whole, you know, 50 million Instagram followers are success and just making money allows you to become president. I mean, you know, that it, it's a it's a very convoluted way to look. No, I think like seek failure. Seek yeah. failure. Go into something you know nothing about because I think you know, I think what keeps you young and I think which is something I think about now, you know, cuz you're young. But what keeps you vibrant and what keeps you engaged and what keeps you as someone people actually want to be around, including yourself including yourself, which is very important to sort of say wanting to be around yourself. And I think you understand, you know, is to constantly learn new things. And you only learn new things if you're starting things you don't know. Yeah. Before, uh, I mean, I just want to touch on that. So I think it's so strange how we have turned service or being a servant or being replaceable in just a, a place of humility, just to know that you have to keep going and keep striving because, yeah, you know, you're you're not the you're not the gift to the world unless you're willing to give to the world, which can't happen if you think you're the gift to the world. That's like the weird paradox. But, but so before we were before I pressed record, I've always I needed to just press record earlier. You started talking about your next project. And I was wondering if we could get a little preview of of what's what's next on this journey. Well. My, you know, what's next on my journey is, and, and it, it has to do with, with being replaceable, actually. Um, I'm, I'm starting a, oh, but, you know, it sounds so lofty, doesn't it? A vertical platform. Um, I'm starting an online site and then we'll write a book and then I'm going out and in, into the world with this. Um, it's called Balance and Beam. And what's really behind Balance and Beam is A, the concept of we can only really succeed if we're balanced in, in most parts of our life at any given moment. And it, you can do it. You know, I mean, gratitude and trust has taught me that. Living has taught me that. And when we balance, we beam. So thus, that's the name. You know, so if you balance, then you can beam out in the world. And when you beam, you're a light. And you're a light, then you help. And okay, so that's sort of the, the name. Um, but what it's really about is, uh, as I said, I'm about to turn 60. And I'm a woman. Now, you want to learn about what replaceable is? <laughs> You want to know the definition of replaceable in the dictionary? You see 50 years old and then you put a picture of a woman next to it. That's the most replaceable person we probably have in the country. And there are, I think, 75 million of me out there, 60 million of me. I don't know how many. I might be over the number. But 
that I think that's how many boomers there are. So you take half the boomers, there's 30 million of me, 40 million of me. I don't know. They're growing every day. And everyone who's 40 is going to be 50 in 10 years. We're really replaceable. We're replaceable because we're no longer mothering. We're replaceable because we've basically been aged out of the marketplace unless we have our own businesses. Oftentimes, we've been replaced by younger women. Oftentimes, we've been left as widows because men have died. Sometimes we're just single. Sometimes, if it's not gender-specific, you know, partners change, whatever it is. We may not have children. But we are really, really replaceable. And the thing you hear more and more, even if you've been working, you hear women say, I just feel totally invisible. Mm. And I, you know, I've been waking up the last year, you know, sometimes in a cold sweat at four in the morning, even sort of having accomplished what I've accomplished in my life, you know, so people kind of look at me and then they would think, why would I do that? It's sort of strange. I know well, people, if they actually saw me like this, would go, wow. And she's like helping me. And she, but you know, I'm human too. And I would wake up at, you know, and go, okay, what's, what am I going to do with the next 25 years? What do those look like? How am I going to fill those? And because I just, you know, I'm not going to go down to Florida and play golf. <laughs> I don't know how to play golf and I don't like Florida. But um, but that's sort of what people, you know, America has set up. That that's what you're supposed to do at my age. You're supposed to go live behind a gate and come out to go to the doctor. Um, and that's not how I see myself. It's, I don't think how I present it. But. It's certainly not how I'm going to live my life. I mean, my mother's 90 and she's still learning how to like needlepoint, like, like make pine baskets and she does collages and she's like writes a column. I mean, you know, she's so I grew up with that kind of a model in, in my mother. But most women don't know what they're doing. I mean, I most know. men too. <laughs> but and men are getting aged out of the workforce too at, mm. at, at higher numbers because the whole thing is like, a, but then that's a whole different discussion about how everything shifted to youth because of tech and not, you know, you know, sort of. 20s, the new, you know, 40s, the new 20, but, but so I'm, I'm, you know, I'm going out there to be the, to be the champion of, of my demographic. You're, you're I'm going trying. out there to, I'm, I, I've, you know, I'm going out there to take care of my tribe if I can and, 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 and sort of, you know, by example and figuring it out myself, which is what I've been doing the last year, you know, and, and so I needed that year of silence and I needed that year of retreat and I needed that year of not knowing what I was doing to realize what I was doing was what I was going to be doing. Yeah. You know, what I was doing was figuring out my way forward. And so that I was be able, would be able to do that, now I have to go help other people do the same thing because I can't. They're my girls. They're my generation. They're, they're in pain. They're lost, you know? It's a loss. There's a lot of loss. They're not all lost, you know? They're not lost. But they're almost a lot. A lot, a lot, a lot are lost. And, and you know, men don't understand it the same way. Maybe you do because you're a single dad. And, and when Jax goes away, you'll go to college. I don't think they, ever, they never go away. My other kids around for dinner every night almost. But it's a huge thing. You know, when you've had them around for 18, 19 years, and all of a sudden, overnight, Oh my gosh, you know, if you've loved being a parent, I can see that you sort of do, you know. I do. You do, you know, and you're a parent at a really young age. I mean, you'll be a baby when he goes to college. You'll, you know, most guys will supposed to be getting married when he goes to college. Yeah. You know, that's the, the advantage of having a child at 19. Um, I had my last one at 42. So, um, but, 
it's big and, and it leaves a hole and it leaves a hole in your purpose. As long as you have children, you know, you have a purpose every day. You've got to take care of those you're kids. thrown into it. Whether yeah, I mean, like, whether you like it or not, you've got yeah. a purpose is to take care of that other person. And so, um, and then you throw in work on top of it, which you need, and you throw in your artistic expression, which you need, and you throw in your relationships, which you need. You know, there are all sorts of these components to one's life. But the child usually gets precedence if it's a normal family because the child needs it. So, yeah, so I'm I'm starting this online, and, and there's very, very little that's geared to, for women over 50. There's a place and a resource and a tribe. And we're covering everything. We're covering, you know, we're covering health. We're covering beauty we're covering spirituality we're covering all the things you know that are um finance you know all all the all parts of life how to how to find balance in all these parts of life and how to move forward with purpose and meaning how do you find your meaning and your purpose for these years that no one prepares you for you know the interesting thing about life is everybody prepares you from the time you're very young for this period this kind of very fertile period which is you know, probably 21 to 50, you know, people prepare you for that. You're going to get, going to go to school or you're not going to go to school and you're going to get a job and you're going to find a mate and you're going to have a family. And this is what you're going to do. These, these years have a game plan. Well, we haven't slated the third act as a place of growth and achievement. I mean, we just, it's like, like you said, like, it's like, this is when you have your savings and it's all figured out. You know? Right, and now yeah. you move into this gated community and, you know, and now you... No, I mean, my generation, you know, we talk about your generation and the contribution. My generation, the boomers, the boomers aren't just kind of wander off into the sunset. I mean, look at your mom. Your mom is a boomer. Your mom is still working every day producing, you know. Um, we're not just... Your mom wouldn't be happy just doing nothing, I'm sure. Oh, she like took a year off and went insane. Right. Yeah. I mean, you, you. So you think you can do it, and you go, "Oh my God, no! I need a purpose." And so we're the purpose generation. I think. I think we're the first. You know, maybe perhaps the first post fifty, sixty year old purpose generation. And but we don't have a game plan. You know, no one, no one ever, ever teaches you. No one ever talks about. They always say, "What are you going to be when you grow up?" Yeah. You know, but they never say, "Who do you want to be as you grow old?" Yeah. And. That's what I'm doing. I'm in the process of growing old, her, and soon, you know, in 10 years, I'll be 70, which I guess is considered old. And yeah, how is that going to be just kick ass? I want to be a really cool old tattooed guy. You will be. (laughs) You will be because you're a really cool tattooed young guy. (laughs) And I want to get a tattoo on my 60th birthday. Good for you. Yeah, that's how I'm going to do it. But so that's what I'm doing. I'm, I'm that's that's and I'm excited. And it's and I went from this sort of inertia and p- fear to excitement. And that's you see, and that's learning something new. I, ho- I hope anyone that needs your message finds you finds this project. Thank you. I like to end the program with a kind of a time capsule message where if you could send your younger self what you think is most important to a life well lived or you can think about it if it was a a reminder to one of your daughters when you're no longer around what what would the the message be that you wanted you know if they were just strapped for time and they couldn't read the whole book or whatever if they could if you could just send them a, a message that would encapsulate the most important things to you what would it be No pressure. 
No, no, no. It's, <laughs> it, it's interesting because it's my very first apartment in New York. This is part of this answer. It was right across. No one is the podcast. So no one can see us. The point is I sit in my bathtub. I look at my very first apartment in New York. And my very first apartment in New York looked at this building right here that we're looking at. And, it had my, and I used to sit there and I was very lost and very confused. I was going to be an actress. It wasn't working out. I had no relationships. They weren't working out. My family was kind of complicated. It wasn't working out. And I just used to look that, looking into that building was almost like looking into the future for me. Like, what is going to happen to me? I'm 21, 22, 23. What is going to happen? And I, and I, you know, suffered from anxiety disorder. So I was anxious. And, and now I sit and I look in the other direction and that little, and I see that young girl looking this direction, wondering about her future. And then now here I am in this apartment. And, you know, what I say to her is just don't waste a day with worry. Hmm. The things you really need to worry about. We spend so much time worrying and anxious and fretting over and fearful over projected future scenarios, you know? And most of them don't come true. And if you just act and don't worry, or if you find a way to find peace in the downtimes, which is a bit of what we talked about today, and just keep moving forward and keep being curious and just keep expanding and giving back to the world. I don't know that I, I couldn't have told myself that then because I was too worried and fearful and confused. Not everything turns out exactly the way you want it. That's not what life is. Thank God. <laughs> but you will find your place, especially if you look for it, you know? So I would... I would tell them, and I tell them, the one thing I do tell them, I tell them to, you know, you have a responsibility to the, where you live, to this earth, to this community of people, you know, to do the best you can, give back in the best way you can, and be the most productive human being that you can for your time here. None of us know what our time here is. Mm. But, you know, if you do kind of look at that day, if today was my last, would I have lived it in the way that I wanted? Would I have something to be proud of on the way out? So I I think it's it's never really like just one thing, like just, just be kind. I mean, one might say that, but keep, just keep moving forward. Keep growing. Keep expanding. Be excited. Be sad when you need to be sad, but then find your way out into your future. You know, because through every sad episode or every depressed episode or every episode when you think it's all over, there is something quite wonderful on the other side. It's just kind of, it's pushing you in that direction. I, th I really think that's what kind of a certain sadness and depression existential is. It's pushing you into what you really should be. It's telling you you're not where you should be. It's pushing you where you should be. So don't be afraid of those times. Don't be afraid of the times that are down and are sad and where things have gone wrong. But push yourself through them and, and go to the place that you belong. I love it. 
I'm going to have to re-listen to that a few times. Perfect. Thank you, Tracy, for your time. Thank you, Sam. This was fun. Uh, Hi, uh, this is Jashant from Bangalore, India. And uh, today I'm going to speak about what my best self would uh, say to my worst self. This would be the guy who uh, finds it difficult to wake wake up in the mornings because he believes the whole world is against him. He believes that anything he touches is just not working out. And to that person, I would like to say one thing. Be grateful. That's it. Because in my experience in life, I've always noticed that life could go so much worse, but it's not. And you need to be really grateful for that. And once you do, you begin to see how lucky you are with the amount of things that you have. It could be as simple as having clean, warm clothes. That's it for today's episode. For more of us or how to support us or for more of Tracy, everything is in the show notes. But if you're especially interested about Tracy's new project, it's at balanceandbeam.com. It's especially for people 40 and older, but I read a bunch of articles and had no problem enjoying them. I hope you go out into the world today and live the best possible day you can, full of gratitude and helping other people and balance. Until next time, have a good one.